I grew up not far from here, <clears throat> right up Sunset by uh, Leonard's, which is now Jayberry's. But I went to school at Bellevue Christian. Well, I went to Apollo and I, I went to Maywood, but I went to school at Bellevue Christian most of the time. So we really did treat Bellevue like North Renton in our family. <clears throat> I'm really glad to be here at Highlands this morning to worship with you, to be praying for other churches with you. What a delight. And, and to gather uh, around God's word this morning and to listen for what he has to say to us. Um, <clears throat> I grew up at a Bible church, pretty unfamiliar with a, a tr church tradition that a lot of the church around the world is practicing right now, which is Lent. And since you have a drum set, I'm assuming you don't do a lot of Lent either. I could be wrong. <clears throat> But uh, the first that I heard of it was my friend Pete in high school said, what are you giving up for Lent? And I thought, oh, was I supposed to give up something for Lent? What's Lent? And he was probably giving up chocolate or something. And this is how I thought of it for a few years. It's a time when some of my Presbyterian and Anglican and Roman Catholic friends give up something for 40 days. Um, <clears throat> it starts 40 days before Easter. Uh, the day before Lent is Mardi Gras when people get in their kicks before they have to stop eating fish or stop eating meat on Fridays and things. And uh, there's 40 days of some kind of fast, whether you, you go without something for 40 days or every Friday during that time, you, you don't eat meat or you don't eat or whatever it may be. And people around the world are doing this right now. There are people that this morning um, are fasting from something or uh, in some traditions, there's even prayers that they pray in most of their church services every week. Uh, and some of the celebratory parts, they actually hold back during the season of Lent because this is a time of um, seriousness, of fasting, of sobriety leading up to Easter. Uh, Lent actually goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to at least the third century. And for a while, some people would fast from all food and drink for 40 hours. Uh, often now it's, it's a period of 40 days, probably inspired by Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, uh, fasting as he was getting ready for ministry. And so many Christians take 40 days to prepare for Easter. And uh, thankfully, they, uh, most churches that have 40 days of Lent leading up to Easter also have something like 50 days of Easter uh, after Easter to kind of counterbalance all the fasting. And the Bible does not tell us that we have to practice Lent. It doesn't actually even include the word Lent. And I'm not here today to say that you have to be, uh, practice Lent. But as I've grown more aware of this tradition, it has caused me to ask, why do people do this? Is there something here that, whether or not I want to do it in, in March and April, that I need to think about, that I might be missing? Because Jesus does actually say that his disciples will fast. So whether or not it's Lent, uh, whether or not we fast in the spring, whether or not we fast for 40 days, it is worth pausing to think, why do Christians fast? Especially if we have good news and we're looking forward to a great future. If we know that Christ is risen and we will be raised you know, for a while there in college, I really resisted all sorts of Lenten things because I thought, well, look, 
Sure, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection on Easter, but I mean, he was, he was actually raised from the dead like 2,000 years ago. And if, if people didn't know that, uh, we're not waiting for him to be raised from the dead. We already have good news. We don't have to sit in, in gloom or darkness. And yet Jesus does say that his disciples will fast, right? Uh, even after his not only death, but resurrection, as they wait for his return. And what I have started to learn and the reason that sometimes I practice Lent and sometimes I don't, but I really appreciate it and try to have some kinds of practices of fasting in my life. The reason I've started to, to appreciate this is because I've, I've learned that life, as, as the passage uh, puts it, this, this Romans 8 passage puts it for us, life is not all good. Uh, there is a combination of hope and groaning in the Christian life. In the time between Christ's ascension and his return, we live in a world full of both good news and bad news. We are waiting for a sure and certain hope, but we are still waiting. And as this passage puts it, we have hope and we have groaning. We have glory that is coming. We have um, the first fruits of the Spirit. We have all this great news. And we also live in the midst of a creation that is subjected to futility, corruption that is waiting. And we're part of creation, right? As individuals, as um, human society, even as churches, we're part of creation. And we are groaning too. I'm actually gonna read this passage again because this is the, the picture of what this time is, right? Some of us uh, are, are tempted to live as just optimists. Life is just good. It's going to work out. Or just pessimists. No, it's not. It's terrible. It's not going to work out. But this passage has something like optimism and something like pessimism really woven together. Um, as you listen to this again, notice that Every sentence seems to have both the hope and the groaning of this life. Both the hope and the groaning of creation. In fact, oftentimes a sentence will start and you'll think, oh, this is one of the hope sentences. Nope, it turns toward groaning. Or the other way around. Think, oh yeah, we're groaning here and it moves to hope. They're, they're woven together like, um, like bread that gets woven together and in, in the oven it, it gets baked together to where you can't even totally tear it apart. Or like a, a cable that runs through your house, right? With, with, with these different wires inside and, and all of it is woven together to serve its purpose. In the same way, Romans 8, 18 through 25 is woven together, groaning and hope. And you really can't pull them apart. Listen for both these themes as, as we read it again. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Groaning and hope are woven together in this passage. And it's not just telling us that out in the creation, there is groaning. Out in the creation, things go wrong. As if we could say, but we Christians, we know the true story, and so we're always happy. (laughs) No, it says... Not only is the creation groaning, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, right? We, we actually, we know God. We know God's future. In fact, we taste it today because the Spirit who will infuse everything, he's already in us. And yet we ourselves, even who have the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. For adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, uh, Not only is creation groaning, but we are groaning with it. And we do this in hope. In us, just like in the world, groaning and hope are woven together. Romans will say later, a couple chapters later in Romans 12, that we have to, or, or, or it urges us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It's a reminder that as Christians, we don't have the freedom to just pick a side, to say, well, I like life, so I'm an optimist. Well, I don't, so I'm a pessimist. Um, No, we're called both to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Because this is what life is until Christ returns. It is both groaning and hope woven together. And we don't get the option of just picking one or ignoring one. If we're going to look at the world rightly, if we're going to look at the world biblically as God tells us it is, we're going to recognize both the groaning and the hope that infuse every day of our lives as we wait for Christ to return. I think most of us... um, do stray from one of these poles or the other. We are kind of wired to either forget the groaning or forget the hope or both, honestly, to kind of just coast between the two. Just We used to say channel surf through life, but now we scroll through life um, without ever really groaning or hoping, without ever really mourning or rejoicing Uh, without ever really fasting or feasting, and yet we're called to both. You know, if you lose sight of groaning, initially you might think, oh, that sounds nice. I'd rather just be happy. But if you lose sight of the groaning around us and in us, a couple things happen. Um, For one, you become unprepared for sorrow when it comes, and it will. You know, I, as a care pastor, my main roles are supporting people who are going through sickness 
dying, and loss. And I can tell you, it comes for all of us. You might be in a sunny season of your life. Uh, I actually am in a sunny season of life. There's this uh, poet, Lee Young Lee, he's an American poet, who talks about, in, in one of his poems, From Blossoms, sitting on the side of the road, in the sunshine, eating a peach. And he says, there are days when death is nowhere in the background, when we go from joy to joy to inexpressible joy. And I think about that poem a lot because actually our family's in a season like that. The 2010s were not that way. Uh, we moved to the East Coast, my wife and I, in, in the, the several years we were there, we moved there with eight grandparents. Six of our grandparents died while we were there and we came back to two. And of course, more than for us, uh, for our parents, that meant lots of caregiving, lots of hard decisions. Will the money last? Where, where, are they going to move in with us? Moving people to assisted living, downsizing, um, parent, grandparents' parents' belongings, which is an emotional and painful process. That was not a sunny season of life. Uh, in contrast, right now, we, we are, you know, our family in a pretty sunny season of life. People are healthy. Nobody's in the hospital. Almost everybody's starting something new. Even the people in our family that are retiring, they're starting new things. And yet we have a responsibility to remember that that's not the, all of life. To be ready, because sooner or later, sorrow will come, tragedy may come. And if I have forgotten that part of the world and part of life and the Christian life is groaning, it's going to catch me off guard. And I'm going to not just um, hurt when it comes. That we cannot change. When pain comes, it's painful. We can't change that. But I'm going to be knocked off my feet. I won't know how to respond. In fact, I'll probably respond badly if I have forgotten uh, that groaning is, is part of life until Christ returns. And the other thing that happens when we forget groaning, and this might even be worse, is we start to really neglect the people around us who are going through suffering. It's sad when someone is going through a difficult season of life and the people around them who love them um, do not have perseverance in caring and supporting for them because they just can't join them in life being hard. <laughs> you know, they're ready to help fix something if their neighbor or community group member or whoever would like help fixing it and getting back to life being good. But it just costs too much spiritually to have to admit that some problems are not fixable in the short term. And we have to just walk with people through suffering. We'll be more faithful in that if we remember that part of life, part of creation, part of faith is groaning with the people around us. Because the truth is, um, creation is groaning. That includes us as humans and um, um, the parts of creation that are not human. You know, it's things like earthquakes. It's things like hurricanes. You look at it and you say, it shouldn't be that way. And that's right. It shouldn't be that way. And it wasn't always that way. And it won't always be that way. And it shouldn't be that way. And, and yet, 
even though it should grieve us, it should not catch us off guard. Because we know creation was subjected to futility. We know creation is groaning, the pains of childbirth. And we ourselves groan inwardly along with creation. Um, It's natural evil like tsunamis and cancer. It's also human evil. Sometimes we see somebody we know or somebody we don't know do something so wrong that either just offends us or pains us because we see who they've hurt. And again, it should pain us. It should grieve us. In some sense, it should shock us, but not surprise us. Because we know that all creation, including human creation, is still groaning and broken until Christ returns, makes all things new, and uh, wipes every tear from our eyes and says, that's it, that is the end of sickness and pain and death and weeping. Until we get there, those things are part of life. There's um, not just individual sin of a person uh, uh, doing the wrong thing, This thing also happens with humans. You put them in a group and they live together long enough and there's patterns, there's habits, there's sin that kind of grows up in the spaces between us too where we're stuck in it even though we don't want to be. Think about, for example, if you were gonna go have somebody make you a a T-shirt, you probably would not tell them to put you know, young kids to work all over the world in dangerous factories. But then you, know, you go check on your investment portfolio and you don't really know what your money is funding. We're just kind of stuck in these things and it's hard to walk away from it. How our things are made, our food are made, how people are treated at the companies that we invest in. Uh, how people are treated you know, behind the, the walls of the, com- the companies and the places that we walk in. We look around and we would like to just live these pure holy lives where nothing we ever do ever leads to anybody being harmed. And that's pretty hard. It's pretty hard in 2023 where we're all overlapping with one another. And it should sadden us, but it shouldn't shock us because we know that creation is groaning. This is just part of life. Anywhere we see it and it can be changed, we want to change it. But the big picture that groaning is part of life shouldn't surprise us because God has told us. You know, the number one reason that we should remember this, as unpleasant as it may be, is that Jesus, of all people, shouldn't have had to do that. And did. Jesus, of all people, could have looked at creation and said, well, that's a mess. Uh, I'll fix this from afar, right? This, this would be a great opportunity to use some kind of long pole or grabber on a stick to put creation back together and not get mixed up on it. Uh, to not get mixed up in it, but instead, what do we hear? that he became flesh and dwelt among us, right? 
that uh, he subjected himself, he, he humbled himself and became a human, even died on the cross for us. I mean, he got as mixed up in it as one could. In fact, in his time here, what do we see him do? We see him um, go to the grave of Lazarus, his friend. And yes, he raises Lazarus from the dead, but what does he do first? He weeps with Mary. He (laughs) takes the time to groan with creation when he wouldn't have to. He knows the ending. He could just skip to it. And yet, when he comes to Jerusalem, he comes over the hill, he lays eyes on the city, and he knows that a week later, he'll be killed there. And he weeps, not for his own death, but for the city, because they're estranged from God, because they're lost, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus chooses to groan with creation, to groan with hurting people, to groan over lostness, to groan that we're still waiting for the kingdom in its fullness. And if our Lord chooses to do this, and he's one who actually could have opted out, it's a good reason for us to follow his example and to see the groaning of creation and groan along with it. But you know, some of us, we have the opposite problem. We forget about hope. And we cannot live without hope. And we have good reason for hope. In fact, this passage at the very beginning and the very end makes it clear that though we don't want to lose sight of either of these, the downbeat is hope, right? The resolution of this is hope. Hope. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For now we have both. But in the end, hope will win out. That's where we're headed. And it says at the end, In this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's saying, look, the hope side is not just seeing the good in life. It is remembering the good that we have not yet seen. It will be better than our best days. That God's kingdom will be better than the sunny seasons of our life. We are hoping not just that we make it through and we don't have tragedy in our life, that we don't lose loved ones uh, in untimely ways, that we live long, uh, but we are hoping, in fact, for the kingdom that is coming. And our king, our risen Lord, who we know, we're waiting for something better than what we've seen. We are waiting for it with patience. And more than I want to say, I don't want to say, look, if you've lost sight of hope, shame on you. I don't think that's going to help. What I do want to say is if you have lost sight of hope, it's going to be hard. If you've lost sight of hope, you have lost sight of what is yours and is actually going to help you live. Because if you've lost sight of hope, again, you're going to have a hard time responding well to the things that happen in your life. You're going to have a hard time rejoicing when there's cause for rejoicing, because there are times to rejoice. You're also going to have a hard time responding to suffering, because it'll knock you all the way off your feet, when really you have the first fruits of the Spirit in you, and you can walk with God 
You can stay on your feet and walk with God through times of great trial. We need hope, but not just for ourselves. Because the second thing that happens when we lose sight of hope is we are unable to pick others up. You know, those sunny seasons of life are not just ones to uh, uh, cling to for ourselves and say, oh, I hope this lasts. There are times to not just make it, but to live in hope so that you can pick up the people around you, so that you can be a voice of hope to those who are feeling hopeless. You know, when people around us go through great grief, sometimes they are knocked off their feet. And it is more than they can do to continue to pray robustly, to continue to believe robustly. They try, they're hanging on, and that's your chance to believe for them and pray for them and pray with them and hope alongside them and to say, lean on my shoulder. We're gonna walk together. We have a responsibility to hold on to both the groaning and the hope so that we can be brothers and sisters to our brothers and sisters in need, to be people of hope. You know, there's plenty of optimists in this world, but there's nobody who has cause for hope like we do as the children of God because we have a sure and certain foundation for our hope. And it's not optimism. It's not why not. It's not happy-go-lucky. It's Christ is risen, and so we will be too. Christ is risen, and so we have access to everlasting life. We have reason for real, solid, concrete hope. And we're called to be people of hope. You know, here again, our number one reason to be people of hope is because our Lord is the Lord of hope, right? Because when he came across the hill and saw Jerusalem, we know Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Without hope, he couldn't have continued on his way to Calvary, right? Without hope, he could not have endured Golgotha. But in hope, he could submit himself to God's will. He could say, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to die. But God, not my will, but your will be done. Because he was living in hope. And he knew that if he was going to the cross, the other side of it would be resurrection. He is our Lord of hope. And he teaches us to live in hope. If you have good reason for hope, why not hope? Uh, you are only costing yourself. We are only costing ourselves when we don't go to the work of hope. You know, it is easier to turn on Netflix than to look for hope. But is it really going to help? I mean, the day will go by, the night will pass. But what we need is not one more episode. What we need is hope. And you know where to find it. You find it in Christ. You find it in God's word. You find it in prayer. You find it as the first fruits of the spirit dwell in you. We can be people. In fact, we need to be people of both groaning and hope. And you may, um, 
you may be saying today, well, that's a good point. Jesus is a good example of groaning and hope, and he seems like a, 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 a good example to us that, that seems like a good way of life. Maybe I'll give that a try. And the thing we have to remember is that we need more than a good idea from Jesus that we're just going to give it a try. We need him. We need more than inspiration or an example. We need a savior. We need a God who comes into our life and adopts us and transforms us. We don't actually have the courage to groan with creation. We don't actually have the faith to live in hope without God's total and life-changing help that we find in Jesus Christ. So you, you could try Listen, if you, if, if you hold Jesus at a distance and you're here today because you're curious what he's like, what he teaches, you can try to follow him at a distance. But eventually you're going to find that you need to draw close. Eventually you're going to find you need more from Jesus than teachings. You need salvation and transformation. Eventually we have to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, the way you have taught us to live sounds good, but I cannot do it on my own. <laughs> I've already fallen short. I got up and I tried again and I found that I do not have it in me. We have to ultimately come to Jesus and say, I give up and I'm giving it to you. And he, he receives that kind of giving up prayer and makes something out of us that we never would have expected. There's a um, passage I love in Ephesians, this prayer about God doing more than we ask, right? You think about your biggest ask about what you would have God do in your life and how he would use you. God can do more than we ask. He can do more than we imagine. We can't even picture what he wants to do through us. He does it not according to our ability or our asking or our imagining, but according to his power at work in us. And eventually, if we want to be people of groaning and hope who see the world for what it is and live rightly in it, we have to actually turn to Jesus and say, save me and lead me. I'm yours. Because when we are in Christ, we have the courage to groan with creation. It's not just pessimism, right? It's not just a grouchy or morose streak. It is the courage to look the world in the face, to see the worst parts of it and not turn away in fear that that's the final word. Without the gospel, it's hard to do that. <laughs> Maybe impossible. To look at entrenched problems like human trafficking that have no quick solution and cause horror to our heart. Without the gospel, how would we have the courage to see it for what it is? And to say, creation is groaning, including us. And I'm groaning inwardly, and I have no quick solutions. But I can see it and admit it and confess it for what it is. In fact, why would I not? Because I know the God who will make all things new, who will ultimately redeem all things, who loves the lost, will bring justice and mercy in this world. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what cause do we really have for hope? But we are the people who know Christ is risen. So we live with groaning and hope. 
I think we actually live best, live most truly, are of most service to others when we never lose sight of these two things. Um, a big part of my job is memorials and um, funerals and burials. And there are times when I have rushed from a memorial to a three-year-old birthday party. And <clears throat> on my own strength, that is emotionally uh, quick. But if I am really living in Romans 8 and remembering what the world is, it's not surprising. The fact is every time you're at a funeral, someone else is rejoicing over an adoption, a reconciliation, um, a gift, a day of health or pain-free. And every time that you are blowing out candles or receiving gifts or dressed up for a night out, Somebody else is getting a diagnosis, right? Grieving a, a loved one, hearing bad news, losing a job or a company. And we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And the fact is we do this best when we rejoice with those who rejoice, remembering those who mourn. <laughs> And we mourn with those who mourn, remembering those who rejoice. To let our, our groaning be tempered with hope. And our hope for the present be tempered with groaning. So that we can really be of service to a lost and hurting world. You know, sometimes we think that <clears throat> to be effective evangelists, what the world really needs is for us to be extremely chipper. And the truth is... <laughs> Uh, you want that solid core of hope and yet it helps people when they know that you see how hard life can be and that you don't hope because you have forgotten about that. You hope in the face of that. And in fact, you groan along with them about their wayward children, their, um, you know, missteps in life, the things that have fallen apart that they can't put back together, their disappointments about who they became in their career or their marriage or whatever it may be. We have to groan with people if we want them to hear the hope in which we live. God has given us a couple of really practical practices for learning to live in groaning and hope. And this is why I started out talking about Lent and fasting. Because learning to groan with creation and learning to hope, uh, two of the best ways we can do this, the most practical ways we can do this, are fasting and feasting. Fasting and feasting. Both of them can seem unusual and out of proportion to the world in which we live. When you fast, you might say, but I don't have to fast. There is food in my pantry. And when you feast, you might say, but should I really feast? There are hungry people. And the truth is, we need to learn to do both because we live in a world of groaning and hope. One of my best experiences of fasting, I don't actually know how this is going to fly here, but uh, <laughs> that's fine. I'm a short timer. <clears throat> 
One of my best experiences of fasting was fasting from alcohol for the period of Lent. I, I, I like wine. Jesus made wine in John. And uh, it, it reminds me that life is beautiful. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson said, wine is bottled poetry. I agree. And yet, even with a couple bottles in the cupboard, there, there have been multiple years where I said, you know what, for the season of Lent, I'm just going to forgo that. Even though I think it's a good thing, I'm just going to go without this good thing to remember that life is not all about just getting what we want, even good things. Um, and that was a good discipline, right, to say, I'm just going without this thing that I like to try to remember that we're still waiting for redemption. In fact, when you think about it, Jesus himself is fasting from wine until he comes again. He tells us this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I have it anew with you in the kingdom. And I think it's legitimate to say he is fasting from wine to continue to groan with creation, with us. He could avail himself of every good thing. It is his right and privilege, and he's already conquered death. But he fasts with us, even in this time, to continue to groan with creation. And so can we. Fasting is a good practice, and, and it may be giving up a meal. It may be giving up alcohol or, or some other thing that you like. You know, it, it might be a digital or technological thing. Although I do think that when we give up um, things we consume, it does help us not just spiritually but physically uh, grown inwardly with creation, bodily, right? You can think about what that looks like in your life, but if there's no kind of fasting or just forgoing good things in your life, you might want to. Think about a practice, a weekly or monthly or yearly practice of fasting to say we're still waiting and groaning with creation. And if you are trying to figure out how do I practice hope in life, I really recommend feasting. Uh, there should be both sides. It, it is, it, it, we can't just live on an interminable stream of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. There should be fasting in our life and there should be feasting in our life. And we see this too in Jesus' life, right? That he does go to the wedding at Cana and he makes the wine and he takes the time to make it a whole thing, right? He doesn't just putz along and say, uh, yeah, you know, all these other people are having a wedding, but I have more spiritual things to attend to. He, he, he dives into the wedding. We see Jesus eating with all kinds of people throughout the gospels. I think it's a good practice for us as well to feast, to have times when we say, this is not just a meal because it was on the whiteboard in the kitchen, right? Because we have to eat. This is a time of feasting, of celebrating together, of gathering around the table together and celebrating the fact that Christ is risen and uh, the ending is good. One of my favorite memories of feasting recently was at our high school retreat at our church. We were up in the mountains at this place and it was New Year's Eve and we're in the cafeteria, you know, it, it's cafeteria food, but it was like slightly elevated cafeteria food because it was New Year's Eve. 
And uh, that seemed worth celebrating. I don't remember what it was. Something and, and tater tots. Um, <laughs> but there was also, you know, this big, beautiful, well, not, it's just a normal dining hall, except at the end, one thing I love about this place is there's this big fireplace, almost as tall as I am and probably six or seven feet across. And, and, and this night, they actually made a fire in the hearth and it felt very festive and medieval. And uh, <clears throat> these high schoolers and I read this prayer uh, with over our, I don't know, chicken burgers about a liturgy for feasting with friends. This was a dear memory to me. This was very fun. Um, <clears throat> we picked up our, our, our lemonade and uh, started out, to gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. And all the students said with me, in celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends new and old and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. Bless us, O Lord, in this feast. And a few days later, uh, uh, a couple weeks later, I got a video on, on my phone of one of the high school seniors who after their dance at their, their, their school dance at their like 11.30 p.m. dinner, decided that they too were gonna read a liturgy for feasting with friends. And it just delighted me to see all the people in their prom dresses um, just praising God and saying, we're having a party because Christ is risen. And sometimes we should feast to live in that hope. We're approaching Easter, and you may or may not practice Lent, but it is a really um, worthy season for fasting and feasting. And I would encourage you to be thinking about um, some way of, of identifying with the groaning of creation in the next few weeks, to put Easter in stark relief to remember how good the good news is, find some way of physically relating with how deeply we are still groaning and waiting for redemption. And then when Easter comes, do not fast on Easter, for goodness sake. Uh, it is the day to celebrate that Christ is risen. And I encourage you to be planning now, not only who are you gonna invite to the Easter egg hunt and who are you gonna invite to Easter church, but with whom are you going to feast? And what are you going to eat? It is a worthy and Christian question. And it doesn't have to be ham, and it doesn't have to be meat, and it doesn't have to be expensive, and it doesn't have to have gluten or whatever other hangups we might have, but it should be feasting. It should be something delicious. It could be pasta, regardless. It doesn't have to be traditional, but it should be celebratory because we have sure and certain hope. And we live in that hope. We're waiting for what we don't see. We're waiting for it with patience. I'm going to close with um, a poem from Gerard Manley Hopkins. This is 
probably his most famous poem, God's Grandeur. And I think it's his, uh, it's, it's probably the poem I know best that captures both the groaning and the hope of creation. It says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would make us people of both groaning and hope because we confess that this is the world we live in as we wait for your return. Would you help us to have the courage to see it for how it actually is, see our neighbors, see ourselves for how we actually are, still waiting for redemption, but waiting in hope. Would our practical plans for Holy Week and Easter testify to who you are, to your redemption and our hope in the world? And God, would you help us to wait with patience? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.